1: that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia, she was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest, and her priestesses were transgender.
0: Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change.
1: Atalanta, fleet footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion.
0: Eats Papa Lotl a skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives.
1: This episode is part of our Women of Myth series, where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology.
0: It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard. It's available wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near
2: you. (laughs) <laughs> we all learned from Elizabeth Bathory that we need blood.
1: I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Today we're so thrilled to welcome Agas Ramirez from the History of Southeast Asia podcast onto our show. Herstory of Southeast Asia tells the history of Southeast Asia from a woman's perspective. Following the history, culture, and mythology of Southeast Asia with a focus on the stories of women, this is an unmissable podcast, and we are so lucky to have a guest on the show today. Welcome, Agass. Thank you for having me on the show today. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your podcast and what drew you to the topic and what made you want to start a podcast on it.
2: Um. So... Uh, My name is Agas Ramirez. I live in Manila in the Philippines. And so I studied political science and eventually I did my master's in Asian studies. And um, I've always been interested in podcasts as a medium. Um, There's something about not being able to see anything that lets you imagine a bit more. And I just really like how you can tell stories without images, if that makes sense. So eventually, if you like something, you kind of think of making your own. So I was thinking about what topic do I know that I can contribute to that nobody's really doing. So that's how I ended up with um, the concept of Her Stories, Southeast Asia. I'm two years into making this podcast, and there's really nobody else that's on the topic still. I kind of hope that there would be more people doing um, the History of Southeast Asia as a podcast, but still working on that, still promoting the cause. So the first episode of this podcast was about Queen Supyalat of um, Burma. She's the last queen of Burma. And from there, just covered a bunch of different topics. Sometimes we cover matriarchal societies. Sometimes um, I get guests on the show to talk about heroines from their country and things like that. So. That's it. That's that's the background of the podcast.
0: Wow. That's really cool. I love the idea that like being drawn to stories where you can't see anything, like there's no visuals. So your imagination supplies all the visuals. I totally agree. This is why I love reading.
1: (laughs) I also love podcasts because there's sort of a there's a democracy, right? There's a democracy in my mind in like voices as opposed to like seeing and having that visual medium. It just allows you to draw out a story in a completely different way, much like reading, and it it's not about who you cast in a role or how something is visually presented. It's about the way you tell a story or research a topic or the things you bring to it in a very different way.
0: So, we're so excited to discuss the epic Princess Urduha. We covered Princessa Urduha in our book Women of Myth, and she's a national heroine of the Philippines. And she's a semi-mythical woman who appears in the writing of Ibn Battuta in the 14th century.
2: Can you tell us about her significance in the Philippines and her story? I actually, I was really excited to tell you guys about this because earlier this month, um, so, you know, we're, we're having the presidential elections soon. Um, so that's on May, the, fir- the second week of May. And so we have a presidential candidate. Her name is Lenny Robredo. And she is the only female presidential candidate. I believe she is currently polling second in the national polls. So she visited Pangasinan as part of her campaign. Um, That was earlier this month. And when, so the event was called Talindeg Pangasinan. So Talindeg is a pangasinense word. In Tagalog, that means tumindig. So these words mean to stand up for your principles and to fight for what you think is right. So that's the context of the rally. And so she has been going around the country and each region that she goes to um, each city or each province that she goes to has sort of their own theme. So this was their theme. Um, so to introduce her because they sort of have this um, production number before she comes out. And so to introduce her, the Pangasinenses staged a production of the life of Princess Ordua. It was a short production but it was interesting because Ordua hasn't really been in pop culture recently. So this was sort of a thing that they did that brought the memory back of learning about her. So In that depiction, the warrior princess, she comes out. She comes out with an ancient sword. It's called a kampilan. So Pangasinan is actually known for blacksmithing. They export swords to the American and European markets. So in this introduction, uh, Tawalisi is presented as a prosperous area. One day, they're attacked by an enemy force, and the people of Tawalisi call on Urduja to defend them. And so she's being surrounded by all these enemies, and she rises up and defeats them. And then, Urduja welcomes Vice President Lenny Robredo, again, the only female presidential candidate. And then they call her the Makabagong Urduja, or the New Urduja of the Philippines. So sort of reliving that myth of somebody rising up against corruption and oppression. So something that the the host said was, um, Urduja is not a myth because her fight against evil and her conviction for her people lives on in Pangasinenses and Filipinos in general. So that sort of that was exactly what I and my guest at the time Tiffany Ann, that's also what, how we felt. It doesn't really matter that she wasn't historically real at the end of the day. She lives on in the stories we tell and how we see our leaders. And especially with these upcoming elections, everything's been so crazy. And so when I saw that production, I immediately thought, um, this is something I need to talk about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting how they're using her, you know, like in modern myth-making today.
1: And it's interesting how her legacy sort of has been retained and changed and still means so much to the people and the culture and obviously the politics. I think for our Western audience, he may be hearing about Orduja for the first time. Could you tell us a little bit more about sort of the roots of her story? So um, for
2: us, for us in school, we usually learn about her when we're discussing national heroes. The most famous portrait of her was done by an artist called Florentino Macabuhay who is a popular artist in the 1940s. His paintings are actually displayed in Malacanang Palace. And I think that's where this portrait is. And so what we know about her wasn't much. It's like we had a warrior princess and she was brave and she defended us against the... Well, she defended her territory because this was a bit... This was this before the Spanish so. They said she was a warrior princess, that she could speak Mandarin, Arabic, that she um, ruled over Pangasinan. So I was trying to remember it. Um, when, I was, when I started doing the, the podcast episode, I asked my friends on Instagram, where is Urduha from? Because I just wanted to see if anybody remembered. And then people were like, Palawan? Pampanga, um, you, you know we we had we have we have an idea but it probably starts with a p. It's one of those things that you really really take for granted. You're just yeah, Princess Orduha was a person who existed, she was a warrior princess and who ruled over this kingdom, and so you just live with that idea, and but when you look more into the real story, you realize there's probably. Not much historical evidence to support this. So basically, growing up in the Philippines, you just know Princess Orduja is a warrior princess. A brave warrior princess. That's, That's it. What's the time frame for when she supposedly existed? I think it was in the 1300s. 1300s or 1400s. She's usually 1300s. So this was before the Spanish arrived. This was a period of really strong trade in the region. And so that's why it sort of, when you don't really think about it, it's like, oh, it makes sense that this Ibn Batuta came here and met her. And then, so if you don't really think about it, it makes sense. But when you really think about it, it's like, oh, some things are not adding up. From Ibn Battuta's perspective, uh, so this was in the writings. It it was the book called A Gift to Those Who Contemplate the Wonders of Cities and the Marvels of Traveling, also known just as the Hrila or the Journey. And um, he said that he left the territory of the Sultan of Moljawa, and then 37 days later, they got to Tawalisi. And then he described it as a spacious country, that they are brave and intrepid. They Their appearance resembles the Turks. So that's kind of a... That's, that kind of stood out to me like... Hmm. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. But... <laughs> <laughs> the women ride horses. They understand archery. They fight with the men. That sounds very Scythian to me. The king's son used to live there. But he died. I think that's, that's sort of the... That's what I got from Tiffany before. So the... The brother died, and then so the sister became queen. And according to the story, she was a queen in all respects, you know, receiving in full state. She had all the regalia. She had all her guards and her ladies-in-waiting. And then she called Ibn Batuta for a meeting, and he was very apprehensive because he saw them as infidels uh, because they worshipped idols. But he was being summoned, so he went. Talked to her, she asked him where he was from, and he said, India. And he described how India was. And according to the text, she said, I have to go and conquer this country. And then Ibn Battuta said, Okay, go, just go right ahead. And Urduhal liked that reply. She's just like, Okay, let's send this man away with provisions. Because I mean, I don't know what would have happened. To him, if she didn't like his reply, (laughs) you know, maybe she would have done something less friendly. So the ship owner, so Ibn Batuta was talking to a ship owner. He says uh, the princess had army in her women, serving women, slaves who fought like men. um, And then she goes into battle herself. So that's really the thing that stood out and that got carried on to current time was that she would go into battle herself. I think that sort of resonates with the sort of leader that the people want. People want a leader who's actually at the forefront if there's a natural disaster or um, something's happening. They don't want a leader who is hiding in his room, um, which has happened.
1: (laughs) So... (laughs) Oh, that that feels very very familiar <laughs> for a certain Western country. Two Western countries that we both happen to be in. <laughs> it does.
2: So and then another thing was Princess Urduha was not married because if somebody wanted to marry her, they would have to defeat her in battle and so nobody dared because they were too embarrassed what of what would happen if they failed. So they just didn't try. That was the story, and that's basically it. That's where that's that's what even Batuta said, and that's the only
1: account of Princess Orduha ever. <laughs> so. I love the nobody tried, <laughs> so she got to remain unmarried. I feel like when we looked at world mythology, we saw that a lot. There's a lot of women, particularly martial women across different cultures who are like, yeah, okay, you can marry me if you can take me on in battle or in Greek mythology if you can beat me in a foot race or like and I just think like it says a lot about masculinity that so many men were afraid <laughs> or how just outstandingly amazing these women were.
0: <laughs> I I might be getting this wrong. We didn't cover her as part of the podcast, so I don't know a ton about her, but there is a I believe a Mongol princess who who wouldn't marry a man unless he could Beat
2: her in wrestling, I think it was, right? Kutulun. That's Kutulun. Yeah, that's who it is. So that's, re- that's really interesting that you mentioned Kutulun because that's where, that's a sort of controversy. Some people believe that Ibn Battuta never really met anybody named Urduha, that he actually plagiarized the writings of Marco Polo about Kutulun and renamed her Urduha. So there's a theory. <laughs> there's a scholar who put forward that theory. Oh, it was um, Jordan Clark. So Jordan Clark is a I believe he's Canadian, but he does a lot of work on Filipino mythologies. He does a lot of original research. So I think that was um, sort of his theory on who Urduha is. There, there are a lot of theories about who she really was.
0: What are some of the most interesting theories on who she really was? Let's let's run down
2: some of the possibilities. Um so the, the first question that people usually ask is where is Tawalisi? So, if you look at the account of Ibn Battuta, he said that he left. It was something like he he left the port of Kakula after visiting the Sultan of Moljawa, and there was also a. He mentioned a place called Samudra. Samudra sounds like Sumatra. Moljawa sounds like Java, which are both in Indonesia. But I've read that these place names don't really appear together anywhere else so we don't know (laughs) and then so again he 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 visits the sultan of moljawa we don't know where that is through the port of kakula we don't know where that is and he passed samudra on the way back and we don't know where that is but so if there is anybody to be um credited or blamed credited or blamed depending on who you ask for the myth of urduha being the princess of Pangasinan, it's actually the national hero, Jose Rizal. <laughs> so, so Rizal, so there was this guy called Henry Ewell, Sir Henry Ewell, and he wrote that he felt like Tawalisi was an imaginary place. And so Jose Rizal read about it and he thought, well, that, that can't be. That, that doesn't sound right. So he takes him, takes a map and then he, I guess, Identifies the port of Kakula, and then he draws a radius of forty-seven days by medieval boat travel. I'm not sure how he did that. I would like to see the the, the math for that. But um, so he he drew like a radius of forty-seven days, and where does he end up? According to that calculation, he ends up in then, and that's it. That's why that's why we think. Orduha lived in Pangasinan.
0: Oh, so this is why, you know, people have
2: that assumption today. Yes. So Rizal says it, and then a few years later, um, it gets written in a book, and then it becomes real. It just becomes real. And so, and that's what we learn in school. And so when you look into it, it's like, well, you learn Santa Claus did not exist, and then you learn Princess Urduja was not real. That's...
1: <laughs> oh, that's harsh! <laughs> Devastating.
0: <laughs> so, what are some other theories about who she might have been and where this story might have come from?
2: So, the other theories I found was somebody thought that she might have been the Javanese Queen Regnant, Tribuana Ujaietongadavid, because she was alive at the time period. So, people thought maybe. Maybe he forgot her name and made something, but but that's like a weird explanation. How do you, I mean, first of all, how do you forget a name like jaya Tunggadewi? You don't forget that name.
1: (laughs) And, And also, how can you trust someone who's telling you a story if like they didn't bother to write the person's name down? Properly, like, or even I guess, like, make up a good name, be like, I forgot the name, it was really epic, but she's the queen of Java. (laughs) So, um, that's
2: that's one theory. I also could not find anything to support that. And, um, there was this other person who thought that she might have been Kutulun, so they thought that she might have plagiarized the Marco Polo book the description of the female mongol warrior kutulun who was alive in around 1260 so like you mentioned kutulun insisted that any man who wished to marry her must defeat her in wrestling she was mongol she rode horses so there's a lot of parallels here that sort of make more sense if she was (laughs) like so the more you think about it it's it's more like oh She does sound like a Mongol warrior princess. I don't know where
0: Pangasinan came in. So, Jen said earlier she sounded Scythian, and we've covered the Scythian warrior culture, which was kind of like in Mongolia and areas around there um, prior to the Mongols, so they existed. We don't really know how far back, but they show up in Roman accounts. They show up in ancient Greek mythology. They kind of became the Amazons. I think the earliest representation of that was from like the seven or eight hundreds BC. So very, very old. They were women warriors in that culture that the Huns and then the Mongols kind of arose out of. She sounds like that.
1: And in particular, they were very skilled archers and horsewomen. You know, they were very great on, on horseback. So it was one of those things where I was like, oh that's that's very surprising. It also doesn't surprise me that there would be a big cultural exchange of those stories across that area. Are there examples of Filipino queens and leaders in that time period or time frame? In the folklore, do they have a more diplomatic role? Like, What would it look like to be a woman ruler at that point in time?
2: So to to be a woman ruler, they were called the babaylan. I don't know if you've heard that word before. So the babaylan, um, the usual translation is shaman. But that's not really exactly accurate, a Babaylan is a woman or a man, dressed as a woman, who is the spiritual and really religious center of her community. So she performs rites, she performs marriages, provides advice, um, she also has a healing responsibility. So she oversees all these things and then she um is a counterpart to the the bayani or the the heroes of the area, so they would work together to support this community and to lead this community. So it was more really of the babaylan that was the prominent role of women at that time, at least as far as we know of the pre-colonial history of the Philippines. That's really the role. The babaylan would later take on a combatant role when the colonizers arrived. So they began to lead revolts, but. Before the colonizers, it was really that religious, spiritual, guiding, healer role for these women. A lot of people also thought that because many of the male rulers started working with the colonizers, it kind of flipped that it would be these religious leaders who would lead the revolts. So it changed. The role changed over time. The Spanish, of course, demonized the babaylan and rebranded them as witches so today when you see the word babylon many people would associate that word with witches there's that aspect of how the word is also changed and so that's um also one of the things that i talked about on the podcast is who the babylon were and who the babylon are today because they did not leave they are still around so uh, there's basically two aspects to it the babylon by bloodline which is really descendants of the old Babylon, And then the sort of the new Babylon, which is educated women who take on this sort of role, they educate themselves in these traditions, but they don't have the bloodline. That's so
0: fascinating. I was also really fascinated by what you said earlier about how it could be a woman or it could be a man or maybe a male-bodied person dressed as a woman. So is there like a
2: gender-fluid aspect to this role? Absolutely. There is absolutely a gender-fluid. And so in the Philippines, we don't have gendered pronouns. So he or she is both sha. The language is very gender-neutral in that way. And so it's, it's difficult sometimes for Filipinos learning English. I think many of us make mistakes with he or she because in our language, there's no he or she. It's all shah. So, um, see si or shah. That's why many, I think many cultures consider Filipino culture to be gender equal in many ways because of things like that. And then in the pre colonial period, there really was a strong acceptance of, especially in leadership, of males who, um, it's a debate. It's, Sometimes they are called trans women, but sometimes they're just men dressed as women. It's There's not a lot of information, but it's uh, widely acknowledged that there were babaylans who were men dressed as women.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And it, you don't, it's hard to tell, you know, if these were um, people who identified as women who had been born male or people who did identify as male, but they stepped into a woman's role to perform this role, like this leadership role. Um, so I could see how it could go either way.
1: So it's so fascinating to hear stories pre-colonization, because, you know, what, just what, what you mentioned about how the roles flipped and a lot of the male leaders had tended to side with the with the Spanish colonialists. And, and there's kind of a reason for that, right? Like, you're imagining this culture that's coming in is very much more patriarchal. And so you can see that women, they're leading those, those uprisings, because like, this change is going to really put them at a disadvantage. And especially like, you can see like, it's coming from these women, and also, you know, maybe trans women and these priestesses, because they can see the writing on the wall.
2: As colonizers, they were much more willing to work with male leaders than female leaders in the first place. So there's a lot of that happening. I know that there were also the male Babaylan who led a lot of the revolts. That's really what comes to mind when you ask about the, the role of women in pre-colonial society. When Oduha would have been alive if she existed?
1: <laughs> have you had any movies or books or things that like if people want to find out a little bit more they could
2: there's an animated film it was created by an all-Filipino group of animators it's called Orduja there's a song there Ang Babae the Woman I think and it was sung by Regine Velasquez and I have to google her official title because I will get crucified for this because in in the Philippines each singer has their sort of title, so there's like Vilma Santos is the star for all seasons, and Chris Aquino is the social media queen. So they they all have these titles. So I have to check. I know she's the songbird. She's the songbird of Asia. These are these are these are serious titles. <laughs> yeah, just make sure we don't get it wrong. Okay. Um. I think her title is Asia... There you go. Asia's Songbird. There. Because there are fandoms. Because many of these um iconic women of the Filipino showbiz industry, they have these really, really huge followings. And they will get into fights. So it's like, your mom will get into a fight. If somebody disrespects Sharon Coneta, for example. My mom is a... They're called Sharonians. Because they're fans of Sharon Coneta. So... Um, they will get into a fight if you disrespect these pillars of the industry. I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> My version of this is like, what was popular when I was in NC? <laughs> Absolutely, we we might
0: be dating ourselves just a tad, but yes,
2: nasty <laughs> <laughs> <you>, boys and snakes. Okay. <laughs> we're a very similar
0: age then (laughs) that was never my thing personally but I I knew people who were very very passionate about that yeah
1: I can totally see it though like as much as we're laughing like I feel like it's just because we're a little bit older but like I'm sure like at the height of like One Direction like if you say if you got one of the One Direction people wrong you know that'd be it
2: talk about these things it's the main that the, the main figures are nora honor and vilma santos so they're the two main actresses so their followers are called noranians and vilmanians so the animated film is from 2008 and it stars regine velasquez asia songbird uh it was created by an all filipino group of animators the plot i've only seen parts of this movie on youtube but it's a very Different plot. It's, uh, it's completely fictionalized, but it does retain some of the core ideas of who Urduha was. So she, she was a warrior with the ability and willingness to defend her people. The rival tribe in the movie were, were the Bajaus. So this is interesting because if you remember, Pangasinan is in the north. It's, uh, in Luzon. And the Bajaos are not in Luzon. So, <laughs> I don't know. There were decisions for me. Choices, choices for me. So the, the, the Sama Bajao ethnic group is actually at the very, very, very south in Tawi Tawi. That's the, the small island at the very south of the Philippines. And Pangasinan, where Tawalisi is supposed to be, is in the north. So, choices for me these are people who are nowhere near each other in other words no they're but i i don't know why they chose me i wonder if it's
1: like an, an attempt to make the story like really broad across the whole area like it uncovers all of the philippines because it's in the north and also in the south
2: i don't have a good theory for why they chose the. my only the only thought i have is um, Maybe because the, the word Bajau is so recognizable as a tribe that they went with it? I don't know. Maybe I should find somebody who worked on this movie. Now I'm getting ideas. Okay, so in that movie, it was her father who father got sick, princess needs to marry because the new husband will be the new leader of the tribe. There were two men who were vying for her hand in marriage. One of them was ambitious and scheming kind of like what is that other animated film? Aladdin. Like that guy. Jafar. <laughs> and then um Urduha meets a Chinese pirate named Lim Hang. I thought that was a, an interesting choice. Limahong was a real person. Yeah, Limahong was a real historical figure, so they used the name Lim Hang to uh, depict this, uh, the, the stranger she falls in love with. Okay. It does really seem like Aladdin now. I didn't think about this until I had to explain it. And then <laughs> now. <laughs> so eventually, Lim Hang, um, wins them over, even though he's an outsider because he is a Chinese pirate. So he wins them over. And, um, they, they, I, I think Lim Hang helps them defeat the Bajaos. And, uh, I don't know what happens after that. It to <laughs> I just, I just know that the central, <laughs> I can't find a copy of, I will try to find a copy of this movie. But there, so, there, there are clips on YouTube. There, there's that song by Regine Velasquez. She's an amazing singer. One of the, still one of the best singers in the country. This movie didn't get a lot of press when it came out. I'm not sure why. Because I would have been in the, Target demographic, I was like sixteen, but it wasn't it wasn't as big of a thing. I feel like it should have been a bigger thing, but it wasn't to really. me, and that's sort of the last thing that comes up when you think about Urduha until that rally earlier this month that happened where they depicted a very short fight between a rival clan and urduha, and at the end she gives her sword to the presidential candidate to raise in behalf of, of Pangasinan. So, yeah.
0: How have depictions of Urduha changed? Because you guys learn about her in school when you're very young. And I'm, I'm just curious to see if depictions of her have changed since you were younger and how people talked about her then versus how they talk about her now.
2: When, when that rally happened, I was actually scrolling through Twitter. People had a really strong reaction to it because they did recall Princess Orduha, the warrior princess. So people were tweeting things like, "I've got to review my history. I can't remember who Orduha is," or things like this. And I didn't want to argue because I wanted people to feel that energy because it is a presidential campaign. So yes, feel that energy all you want. I will bring up the part where she was not real at a more appropriate time. This is not the time and place to argue with people who are on, who are hyped <laughs> about this. And as long as it generates interest, whether it's a myth or it's a historical figure, if it generates interest, I'm happy. As a person who um, just loves history and has a history podcast, as long as you're Googling things, I'm, I'm happy for that. So to answer that question, it hasn't really changed. She's a warrior princess who stands for good and defeats evil and rules over her people, compassionately. That's it. It hasn't really evolved. I know that in in Pagasinan, the the Governor's house is actually called Urduha house, and there's a there's there's an Urduha street there's an Urduha hospital in that area they really believe her to be well many people believe her to be a historical figure but as far as the the, the depiction it hasn't really changed. It's probably just more people making fan art now of her. But the elements, the elements remain the same. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from
1: World War II.
0: They had no idea that she was Britain's top female
2: codebreaker.
1: We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of
2: course it was dangerous, but uh,
1: danger was his friend.
2: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Are there any others that are less well-known than Arduha
2: that you feel should be better known? So the heroines of the colonial period are much more well-known because they're much more well-documented. trying to think about pre-colonial women because it's always like, there are no names. Oh, there was one. There was a queen called Tuambaloka, I think. There were queens who were written about, mostly in the South. The, the first one that comes to mind is Queen Tuambaloka of Holok. Um, she was said to be from Basilan. And she was said to have fought the Spanish. Again, I'm going off flashcards. These are, (laughs) there's really not a lot of information. I would love somebody, I I would love for somebody to do more research. As you know, it's kind of difficult to conduct research in the southern parts of the country. There's been conflict in the south for a very long time. There are secessionary forces in the south and there's been over the years not not as much recently i i remember there was a very big thing where there was a major bombing in marawi city um but it's been going on for as long as anybody can remember and so it makes it difficult for any academic to go in there and research i would love to do that but it helps if you're part of the community, but the conflict there, I think, has impacted how we study or conduct original research. Also in, in the South, uh, in Cotabato, there was a reina Sima. I know that it, it was very early on that she ruled over Cotabato. There was one story of Queen Sima that I remember, which is that she was very strict. But one day, her own son disobeyed her and touched something that he wasn't supposed to. And the punishment for that would be to cut off a limb. So the queen was very, very strict. She ordered his foot to be cut off. But her minister said, no, let's not do that. That seems a bit much. (laughs) Also, he's your son. So she's like, okay, fine. Just cut off one toe. What did he touch? It was like a gold, it was a treasure. It was uh, a treasure that was left in the open to see if anybody would try to steal it. Oh, well, see, that's just not, that's entrapment. <laughs> that's just not fair. <laughs> you know, there's like, I have questions. Like, how old was the sun? If he was like five, that's just not, that doesn't make sense. Maybe it was shiny. And also, I'm 30, and if I see something shiny, I can't promise that I won't touch it. So,
1: not to steal it, just out of curiosity. I mean, I think touching shiny things has been like <laughs> something we've built this podcast on, at least for me. I <laughs> feel like it's very on brand. I'm like, ooh.
0: <laughs> so we'd have limbs hacked off, is what we're saying. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Um, and that's, those are the only two that really come to mind. And mind you, those are not popular names. I only know them through researching for the podcast. So, but uh, when you get to later on in the colonial period, that would be Gabriela Silang. usually with her husband, Diego Silang. So there was a, there a tandem. They were leading the troops against the Spanish guerrilla attacks. At Tandang Sora, whose real name was Melchora Aquino. She was helping the Katipunan, the, the revolutionary force at the time. The other one is Marcela Goncilio, who saw the first Filipino flag. Probably the historical figure that we covered on the podcast recently that I want more people to know about is this woman called Paz Marquez Benitez. So back in college, we read a short story called Dead Stars. and I really like that story for how beautifully it used the English language, but I didn't really know much about it until later when I started researching her. And so, Paz Marquez Benitez was sort of right at the crossroads of Americans coming in and changing the education system and start teaching English. And she takes to the system pretty well. She she was born to a prominent family, and she became the captain of Manila's first girls basketball team, which you know basketball is the national sport today. So the informal national sport. <laughs> so so what I liked about the story of Paz Melquez Benitez is she was really one of the first girls to study under the American colonial education system. So one of the first girls to Study English to become fluent in it, and she was the captain of Manila's first girls' basketball team. She played tennis she she attended the American school in Manila, and then she became a beauty queen um It was called uh, the Manila Carnival, so she was one of the queens of the Manila carnival, so it was the same year she she won the Manila Carnival. And then the same year, she graduated from college. So, big year for her. And then, so later, um, this woman, Paz Marquez Benitez, she would go on to write the first short story, the first short story in English written by a Filipino. So that's Dead Stars. And then later, she goes on to establish a women's journal because she was, growing up, she liked reading those American uh, magazines. So when she became a professional, her and her husband put up this school. She established the the Philippine Normal School, I think. And then they put up the Philippine Journal of Education. And so it was the Philippine Women's College and then the Philippine Journal of Education. And then she co-founded a magazine, the Woman's Journal. And it was styled after American women's magazines. So she she really embodied sort of the ideal Filipino woman under American colonial rule but later on in life she began to question how her education and her her career contributes to building a nation that a nation of its own outside um what the Americans have built or established so it, she's a she's a very interesting figure her daughter would go on to become also a journalist. She would become an important journalist later on. That's one of the one of my recent favorites that really resonated with me because she is also a writer. And she wrote Dead Stars, which is a fascinating short story about um what happens when you let a fleeting love interfere with your life. Now I want to look at this short story and read it. I'm not going to spoil why it was called Dead Stars, but really, when I read this story, I was, I was just thinking like, now this is how you use language. This is it. This is, this is magical. So, Paz Malkes Vinites, again, not a name you'd encounter every day, but, so there are so many of these women who did so many things, but you sometimes would see a line in a textbook about them every now and then really the, the podcast, the hope is to just provide a platform where anybody in, who's interested can come and learn everything they need to learn about this particular figure and maybe enough for them to start their own research into it. <laughs>
0: talk about a monster that you love from uh, mythology,
2: female or feminine presenting? Okay, probably Western audiences would be very familiar with the Manananggal. But I'm not sure if you you know the why she's called the Manananggal. Like the root word of Manananggal is the word tanggal, which means to remove. So, the thought is that it either means, it either refers to the way that her body separates at the waist and flies off into the night, or the way that she would remove the internal organs of her victims. So either way, it works. There's a long-running horror film franchise, right? It's called Shake, Rattle, and Roll, which is also a song so what they did was, if you know this song, the Shake, Rattle and Roll song, they took it and then they made a horror version and that's the theme song of this movie. It's been going on for like 30 years now. It's, so the, the Manananggal, of course, is featured prominently there. So the the depiction of the Manananggal, the popular depiction is that she's a, she's a woman who is mysterious. She's usually new in a place. And so people are suspicious of her because she's so beautiful. What is she hiding? And so she's a beautiful woman. She's single. Terrifying. I'm horrified. (laughs) (laughs) A single, attractive woman. That's all you had to say, really.
1: (laughs) As soon as she said single, I was like, oh, yeah, that's it.
2: (laughs) She's a beautiful, beautiful single woman living
1: in her own house. What could she be hiding? It's true. All (laughs) of us beautiful women have secrets. (laughs) And that's the story of the Mananangal, really. Clearly she's living off the blood of virgins and that's how she looks so good, right? That's the only way a woman could be single and living alone and not be
0: dependent on others. Look, your skincare routine always incorporates the blood of virgins eventually, unless you just really want to let it go.
2: (laughs) We all learn from Elizabeth Bathory that we need blood. That's right. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to discuss two particular segments here. So the first one, this was like the first movie back in 1980. So she's a single woman living in the forest. And so she has a suitor who comes to uh, serenade her under the moonlight, the full moon, where she transforms. So she takes this sort of oil and she wipes it all over her body and then she begins to separate at the waste. Her first victim is the friend of the guy who was serenading her. And then, and then uh, the grandmother in the movie says, in order to defeat her, we need to get a lot of salt. So the folklore, the myth, is that you have to find the lower half and then pour salt on it. That way, she can't reattach and she will die when the sun rises. So that is what eventually uh, happens. So the, the manananggal is attacking this house where the grandmother and the guy who was serenading her, they both live there and they're attacking this house and they hold her off until sunrise and she dies in a an explosion of light so what i want to uh, note there is that they were living in the province and it's very easy to see the moonlight in the province you know there's a lot of the trees and so there's a lot of amazing shots of this manananggal in her bat wings just staring off into the moon in the middle of trees so a few years later they released a follow-up to that story where the manananggal moved to the city
0: Wait, I thought she exploded in the
2: light. Oh, so it's a different manananggal. Wait, another woman living on her own in a big city? No, this one's different. Because the single beautiful woman living on her own was a nun who was volunteering at a health center.
1: <laughs> of course. So she's a very trusted woman.
2: Yes. So then a manananggal terrorizes an urban poor community and they end up defeating her. So this is important because there is a change in how she was defeated. In the original story, it was only salt, but in this story they added a thing where they you should put chilies on the lower half. So at this point you're like, do you also need onions
1: or garlic?
2: Or what? (laughs) What are (laughs) that's my question.
0: What other seasonings?
1: (laughs) Are we making some kind of delicious dish out of this lower half? And also I'm curious.
2: what are we trying to cook here? So the context of this was very interesting to me because it's an urban poor community and chilies are not cheap. So the kid in the movie, he's like, well, I can't find fresh chilies. What do I do? So he steals hot sauce and then that's what he pours on the lower half. And that's how they defeat <laughs>
1: <they> <laughs> Wow. I have to tell you something. I'm very excited about the fact that hot sauce will defeat them because I have a lot of it in my house. I don't necessarily have a lot of fresh chilies.
2: I'm not sure if there's like a brand you need or like how many Scovilles of the of the chili. <laughs> Is it just, could I just use like sheer volume? <laughs> Would sriracha work on a man in gal who's Filipino or does that only work for a, the Thai version? of the Mananangal because in in Southeast Asia, there are many iterations of the Mananangal. I like to joke that, um because we always get asked in Southeast Asia, how are you a region? You have nothing in common. We have so many different languages and we have so many different religions, but we do have one thing in common, and it's that we all seem to have the myth of a woman's upper half separating from her body, and eating victims in the night. That is a unifying factor.
1: (laughs) It really is.
2: It is. It really is one of the unifying factors of what it means to be Southeast Asian. It means you are afraid of a woman's upper half eating you or your dog or your caribers. In Indonesia, she's called the penanggalan. So it's again, it's the same root word in Malay. It's tanggal. She's different because she's a floating, disembodied woman's head with organs attached. So it's not half; it's the head.
0: The spine is dangling down, right? I think we've encountered this one too. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, that's her the, with a the, with a spine dangling, and then so in Thailand she's called the Kraswe. in Vietnam she's called Malay, in Cambodia she's called ap. In Lao PDR, she's called Kasu. This is pre-colonial. This is embedded in the general consciousness of everybody in this region. I don't know how or why. <laughs> that is <laughs> That is really unexpected. <laughs> I don't know how or why this happened to us. I don't know what it is in our collective consciousness. <laughs> somehow, somehow across across like how many miles, we just figured. This this is a thing that exists and we are all afraid of. The
0: other things that we talked about that might be a signifier of the Menenengal is that she is a single woman alone. Is that true throughout mythologies and
2: countries as well? I'm going to say offhand that's a yes. Usually in these depictions it's always a single woman who is either young and beautiful or alone and old and if she's alone and old she's probably looking for somebody to give the the so in in folklore if you're an aswang and you're dying or you want to pass on the 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 power <laughs> or the curse you throw up a black chick and then i don't know how mananangas are created but i know aswangs are created that way so they pass on a a, a black chick and then you swallow it, and then you become an aswang. What is an aswang? Oh, an, an aswang is a, it's a very catch-all term for a monster. The aswang could be male or female, or gender equal like that, equal opportunity for monsters. Too. When it comes to gender-specific things, there's something I found that's attached to sex, premarital sex specifically, or baptism. So, a lot of Horror themes in Southeast Asia, I feel, are attached to reproduction. There's a particular one called Kuntilanak in Indonesia. And it's very specific because she is a woman who died a violent death while she was pregnant. So she could have died during childbirth or she was murdered by her lover while she was pregnant, and that she becomes a Kuntilanak. In the Philippines, there's no Kuntilanak, but there's a Chanak, which is a child who was. Uh, aborted, or a child who was stillborn and, of course, this is after colonization, who was not baptized. So there's a lot of that fear surrounding reproduction that's common in a lot of these stories. And then, of course, you have the, myth, the myths of the white lady. Usually, white ladies are women who were killed by the Japanese during World War Two.
1: And when you say white lady... You mean a woman dressed in white? Yes.
2: She's a woman dressed in white. She has long hair and her feet don't touch the ground. And she haunts where she was either killed or buried. There's a popular myth of, uh, it's called Balete Drive, where a white lady is said to haunt the streets. So we have so many uh, horror figures that are linked to the Second World War. There's always that priest who was beheaded And in the same place, usually, is the white lady who was assaulted uh, and killed during the
1: You're quite active in that area of the world with like volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes and stuff. Do you have any white ladies or any sort of myths relating to that? Oh, that's a really good question.
2: Hmm, Not in that way. We have myths about women becoming mountains, if that makes sense to you. Maria Makiling is a popular myth where a woman becomes a mountain and um it's said to be an enchanted forest where the the goddess uh resides and you have to ask for permission if you want to go and i feel like there's much more relating to the water than there is relating to that in a horror sense but it's also that our monsters have grown with us oh like the mananagal, she used to be in the province but she's moved to the city now Our horror stories now are about Aswangs who are terrorizing the MRT, the train. So I'm not sure if there's anything specific to volcanoes. I'll have to look into that. But there's a lot about the mountains being associated with a feminine, divine sort of power. Now I just want to find out more about that. (laughs) I'm so excited for people to find out about Urduja and the existential crisis that it has put many of us in <laughs> like, realizing that she was probably a mongol princess and not a filipino one when all your life you thought you had a warrior princess i'm excited for people to find out about her <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> so are we <laughs> We are too. And it just, it was so interesting reading about her and finding out more about her and then being able to talk to you about her and be like, tell me everything. (laughs) And it's great to see that she's still, you know, in popular culture today.
2: She's still, at least in some ways, she gets mentioned again because of what happened earlier at the rally where they depicted her life. So it's, it's nice that a new generation of people is taking interest in that. Hopefully there's like more stories now or more fan art.
1: I've, I've noticed that people have been making more fan art. So
2: this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for
0: coming
1: on the show. Can you tell people where they can find you on social media, on Patreon? Like where can people find out more about you?
2: So the podcast is called Her Story Southeast Asia, the history of Southeast Asia from her perspective. And you can find updates on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. At her story C pod. And so there's probably a new episode that's coming up currently covering the colonial period. We just did an episode on Asut Pigwa, who is a Burmese trader back in Malaysia. And feel free to get in touch with ideas. If there's somebody from your culture, um your Southeast Asian culture that you want to be on the show, feel free to talk about. Or tweet at me at her story
1: CPod.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Maraming salam. You're welcome.
1: We had just had such a blast talking to you. And listeners, we will see you next week.